Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Tish Harrison-Warren. She's an Anglican priest, serves as the co-rector at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's also an author who contributes regularly to The Well, Hermeneutics, and Christianity Today, and is the author most recently of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. I give you Tish Harrison Warren. Tish, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing swimmingly well, and we have a mutual connection. You live in Pittsburgh. I used to live in Pittsburgh. And have you eaten at Permani Brothers yet? No, I haven't. But we've only been there like just a couple months now. And a friend gave us a gift certificate, but there's so many of them, and everybody has a different opinion of which one we should go to, so... We haven't actually gone yet. If you have an opinion about which one is the best, you should tell us. They're all awesome. And I think you're being wise and judicious by taking your time. Have you been to the zoo yet? Yes. I love it. Multiple times. Because <laughs> we I have little this. kids. So we've, we've been there. We're, we're members already. I love it. I love it. Well, you have written a great book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And I want to talk to you about it. But first, I just wanted to ask you quickly, because you wrote a really thoughtful, interesting, some may say provocative piece for Christianity Today about, I guess this was in the wake of the Jen Hatmaker sort of stuff where people kind of turned on her because of some statements she made that were outside of their theological lines. And you're, you're kind of drawing attention to the fact that maybe there's a crisis of authority in the, in the internet blogging sphere with regard to Christian bloggers. And, and you, you, you sort of say that this might be something to pay attention to, even worry about, because you've kind of got theological like guns for hire out there, or guns not for hire, just kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it ended up being a hugely provocative piece. I want to say we had no idea. I, I walked into that fairly naively. Um, my piece, the argument um, is essentially, um, well, a, a lot of what you said, but I would back up and say, I didn't get to cover this in the piece, but certainly I want to acknowledge, and some people have pointed this out, but this is part of a much, much, much broader discussion about the way we understand authority and the pastoral office and the teaching office of the church that's just um, generally been a struggle um, for especially since the Reformation, I mean, in all of Protestantism. And I bring that up briefly in the piece. I talk about um, the printing press and how that created a crisis of authority. And some people have taken issue, I think, in just even the word crisis of authority, but I'm using that almost as a term of art. Like when you talk about the Reformation, people talk about a quote-unquote crisis of authority, of saying um, who speaks uh, on behalf of the church and what kind of um, qualifications are needed to do that. And so, um, and you see that, you see this, you know, same question throughout, um, Protestant history, particularly in America, where you start having, you know, things like Billy Sunday, people like Billy Sunday, who, you know, were revivalist. Um, granted he was also ordained, but, um, but he was a revivalist going around 
you know, preaching open air tent revivals, the stuff that makes American, when people think American Christianity, that's what they think of, right? It's like the tent preacher. Um, but, um, it's always called into question of sort of what qualifies someone to say that they're speaking in the name of the church and that they're speaking for Jesus, right? I mean, we can say I'm under the authority of Jesus, but, um, who, <laughs> who decides that? How do you know that? How do you know that what this person is saying is actually under the authority of Jesus? Um, and so I, I think the new technology of the internet has really accelerated this and that's for men and women. But I think particularly because of complementarianism, there's just fewer institutional spaces for women. And, and by complementarian for listeners not familiar, you mean like people that think men and women have different roles in church and family. And generally it's a belief that the male is the head of the family and the head of the church, right? Right. And so women can't get ordained and they're not um, often in like positions of pastoral authority. And so, and so um, there's sort of a, in America, there tends to be a real democratic notion of what, of who decides what orthodoxy is, you know, that we kind of get together and vote on that. Um, as opposed to, I mean, historically much more, um, I mean, Okay, so I'm going to bring up something really old school that your listeners may or may not know. But famously, you know, Arius and Athanasius. Arius, this is, we're talking, this is what the Nicene Creed came out of. Very, very, very early church. And Arius said, Jesus was the chief among creatures, but he wasn't divine. Well, they didn't get together and, like, blog about that and decide what sounded good. Like, they, they, there was a church council that said, no, this is not an orthodoxy you, if you are a Christian, what Christian faith is is that Jesus was divine. He wasn't. Didn't Saint Nicholas? Didn't Saint Nicholas punch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, I think historical debate about that. So no one's for sure. But I'm gonna go. I'm, I, I'm gonna go with yes. If that's not true, it should be. <laughs> totally right. Yeah. Santa Claus punching. Right. So, um, anyway, so, um. The, the, historically, there was this idea that there is orthodoxy and it's guarded by the church. And um, so I think there's a lot of like democratization of American Christianity, non-denominationalism, like lots of stuff is playing into this complementarianism, as I said. But we're just at a place now where there's um, more or less folks that are functioning as public teachers of the church, but they didn't get there by... Um, getting a seminary degree or getting ordained or going through any kind of credentialing, they got there by starting a blog. And I don't actually think that that's wrong. And I'm not saying those folks need to stop writing. I'm saying, and there's obviously lines here to be drawn. Like if you, I'm not saying that every person who writes like a poem about God needs to, or, you know, is a musician or um, is writing a blog to their like 30 best friends about their struggles with doubt. Like, I'm not saying that all those people shouldn't write or um, create without being ordained or without having theological education, but I'm saying um, it's, there's lines here to draw where folks are really becoming um, what historically would have been called, would have been an office called the public teacher of the church, 
um, where people were set aside to be public teachers of the church. And yeah, didn't didn't Calvin want four offices, right? Like he he wanted not just minister, elder, deacon, but he also wanted doctor as a, as a fourth. Mm. But they kind of never went with him on that. But usually, people in Geneva just didn't do what Calvin thought because like he wanted it. Maybe they didn't like it. <laughs> like, well, why why can't we do it? Because you wish it, Calvin. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um. And so, you know, historically, this teaching office of the church has been um, guarded because not because people wanted to necessarily um, be real mean to people, but because they wanted to guard the teaching of the church. Um, And so I'm saying we're in this new place where anyone, anyone can be a teacher of the church um, if they get enough followers, if they get enough people reading their blog. And so I'm saying the church needs to think really creatively about how to deal with that, where, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that these people need to stop writing, but I just mean denominationally, as a denomination, we need to think about um, what would it mean to partner with um, some of these folks in a really formal way or commission people into um, writing or to... um, and and with that comes accountability, but and and with that comes things like possibly need for theological education and things like that. But I, I guess what if you did like American Idol? Like you got a couple people from a couple different denominations, <laughs> a big crowd of Christians, and people came out and did their teaching for like three minutes, and then people like but, like ding them or not, and then the, the audience could vote, congregations could vote, and you should just do it that way. Yeah, that uh, that would be a one creative way to do it. Um, I mean, I think um, some of this is people who are writing, like being a lot more explicit about what their local church is, what their lo- what their statement of belief is, what the church discipline they're under is. I mean, people have brought up since my piece came out, C.S. Lewis, um, which is a really different historical context. I mean, he was a lay person writing when there were very, very few teachers. I think now there's a we have an abundance of teachers. Um, who are, you know, claiming to speak in the name of the church. But it, um, Lewis is a, is a good example that he was um, an Anglican. He was upfront about his tradition. and He was in a particular church and place that um, practiced church discipline in some way. So if Lewis would have denied the divinity of Christ, there would have been some dis- some um, public recognition that he could not speak in the name of orthodoxy and deny the divinity of Christ. So I guess I'm wrestling now with like, what if Arius was a blogger? Like, what do we do about that? If, if it's all just democracy, what do we do? If he was a blogger, he'd be on Patheos and no one would read it. <laughs> no, but at the time that he was alive, he was, his view was more popular. Oh like, yeah. He yeah, was yeah. the, he was the, like, he was like the super celebrity view. Um, even though now, uh, he was a celebrity pastor before there were celebrity pastors. Exactly. Right. And he was a heretic and he was, and he was called to repent by the church. Um, Do you think this problem that goes back to the New Testament? I mean, you have in Corinth, you have this kind of people that kind of pop in and sell, pitch a different idea and they seem to get, in First John, it seems like that happens. There's kind of, I wonder if this is a problem that goes back to the New Testament. I wonder too, I remember. Great question. Scott, my, my church history teacher, Scott Sunquist at Pittsburgh Seminary, he's at Fuller now. I think he's the head of the School of World Mission. But I remember him giving a lecture about signs of church vitality from a missiological and historical perspective. And one of the things he noted as a sign of vitality was heresy. And what he meant by that was 
you, you know, when Christendom, in the dead parts of Christendom, where, where there's no mission, no outreach, you don't get much heresy. Heresies tend to sprout up when the church is out in the world making converts. The converts aren't totally formed. They bring in questions. You try to sort of accommodate the questions, engage their questions, speak the faith afresh like St. Patrick. Sometimes you go too far or, or pendulum swing, you know, in a different direction. So I wonder if like if some of the the kind of plethora of ideas being bantered around in the blogosphere and on podcasts and things like that is, is part of a sign of spiritual vitality in that the, the 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 church and the world are kind of mixing it up together. Yeah, I actually would I would agree with that, but I would nuance it in one way because I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think I think I agree, but with this nuance is that it's not just that heresy is a sign of vitality. It's um, it has to be both um, the heresy. Maybe I'm not saying we need heresy, but I'm saying that it, some of this is going to be in the church's response to heresy. So if if there's just heresy and the church goes, no problem, cool, and there's no uh, pushing against that and saying this is heretical or anathematizing that in some way, then I don't think that's vitality. I think. I mean, a good example of this, um, and I don't, I don't even know. This is a little controversial what I'm about to say, but <laughs> so I don't want to do more it. controversy. I love it. I love it. I but love I, it. Um, you know, um, famously, Bishop John Pike in the '70s, he was a bishop in the Episcopal Church, denied the divinity of Christ, um, and he wasn't disciplined. He was he was allowed to continue to be a bishop. Um, he continued to deny key doctrines of the faith and actually really tragically, and I, I think this is an example of the church kind of failing him, um, he died in the desert on an LSD trip um, uh, looking for um, hallucinogenic drugs as a, as a kind of passage into the transcendent. And um, so you look at that and sort of the church allowing heresy from its teaching office, which the bishop would be. And, um, and that didn't create vitality in the church. I mean, if anything, um, you know, if you look at the numbers and the growth that, that, um, I mean, Ed Stetzer just put out a thing that said if the, the mainline churches continue to decline at the rate they're declining, they only have 23 Easter's left before the doors are shut. And I am not anti-mainline at all. I mean, my my best friend was an, is an Episcopal priest. I was in her wedding. So, um, but I, um, or one of my best friends, but, um, anyway. Yeah. You don't want to say the, cause yeah, you know, some people get offended. <laughs> cause I, I should, wait, wait, I'm her best friend. She wasn't my wedding. I'm not no, 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 no. I actually do have about f- five people that I'm really close to, but, um, so I have really close friends, um, who are mainly pastors, but I think at the same time, it's not like, in other words, tolerating heresy, and I don't, I don't mean that as if there should be any kind of, um, you know, violence or, or, um, like, cruel rejection of people. But I just mean like, what about just tasers? <laughs> right, not tasing heresy. No, but I mean tolerating heresy as acceptable teaching. Um, I don't think is a sign of vitality, but I get the point that like, if the, if there can also be this fortress mentality of let's like shut all the doors because we're worried about any kind of, um, 
you know, if we engage with culture, like we, it might, it might like disrupt rock the boat too much. And that also is a sign of spiritual death. And so the notion that we're like going out and interacting with the world and false teaching is going to be naturally cropping up from that. But the church is responding to that lovingly and faithfully, but also truthfully and um, protecting the what has been historically called the deposit of faith, then I think, yeah, that's like, that's what we're after, right? Like that sort of a missional, risky place that is also faithful and, and stable and wise. Um, but that's a, obviously it's like, that's a hard wave to surf, but, um, but yeah, I agree with that. And, and I wonder, do you think the church needs like distinctions between orthodoxy heresy and heterodoxy. I mean, because sometimes people are... That's really helpful. S- ...sort of differing from the mainstream, but they're not heretics. I mean, they haven't... And I, I look at someone like Origen, like this, yeah. or even Schleiermacher in the mm-hmm. modern period, people who are kind of ahead of the curve, and and it sucks, too, when you make somebody a heretic, like Origen, retroactively after he's dead. I mean, you know, right. it's just like, oh, okay, you're, you know, before the lines are drawn. Yeah, and, and I don't think anyone clear. thought he was a heretic when he was alive. At the time, yeah. yeah. No. And, I, and so I think, yeah, having nuanced categories that think can be helpful. Yeah. And so I, two more things I want to say about this is that, yes, I think that's helpful. And all of this is line drawing. The line drawing between heterodoxy and heresy, that's, that's, we have to sort of have a conversation as a church about where to draw those lines. Line drawing between when are you just like, you know, a blogger that's kind of like writing about your thoughts about you know, what you're wrestling with, with the Gospels, and also maybe like, you know, great ways to use plain yogurt and cooking. And and when when does it sort of tip the line to become you are, you're functioning as a public teacher, you know? And I, and I think some of this, like, I, I've heard, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but Glendon Doyle Melton, who I really don't follow and don't know much about, but she refers to her readers as a congregation. I mean, I think there's a, there's a sense of her. I hope they're tithing to her then. <laughs> um, That's when you're a teacher. If people are sending you money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. But uh, anyway, so I think, um, and all of this, of course, all of this goes back to, I mean, I bring up the fact that bloggers are functioning as this kind of like cyber mega church pastor now. So this model is not, new. We've had megachurch pastors, but I, I think um, the notion of the non-denominal megachurch pastor who has this huge church built on his personality, it's usually a guy um, that doesn't have a lot of denominational oversight, doesn't have a lot of accountability. I have a real problem with that model. I have a problem with that model with Joel Olfstein or Mark Driscoll. Um, and I just, I think that we've sort of taken that into the cyber age and, um, it looks different. And so I think we need to figure out what that looks like. And I don't think that means everyone has to stop writing, which some people have felt like I'm like censoring, but I do think that means that if someone is a public teacher, which is not necessarily all bloggers, then I do think they're held to a higher standard of accountability for what they're saying. I just do. I mean, I think I'm held to a higher standard for accountability of what I'm saying because I am a public teacher because I'm a pastor. Um, how do you get how do you get a lower standard? That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a lower standard. Yeah, just to, like be like you know a layperson who like shows up and then leaves. <laughs> I like, like that. I'm, into that. <laughs> I'm very into that. Yeah, um, and and that's what some brought up some of this is like you know when Jen Hatmaker 
switched over and everyone kind of, or switched, her views changed on homosexuality and people freaked out. And everyone immediately, the argument went to arguing about sexuality, which is fine. Um, but I was asking these sort of meta questions of, um, like, there's plenty of people in my pews that have the same view and no one's freaking out. Like, no one cares. And why is that? And I think it's because um, they're not public teachers. And uh, and so in the same way that it would be a bigger deal if, like, Tim Keller came out for um, gay marriage or for women's ordination than if, you know, uh, my neighbor did. Um, and so uh, just historically, public teachers have been held to higher standards and to more accountability. And so I think people are functioning as public teachers without ever having been um, kind of formally given that um, that designation. And so we need to just figure out what that looks like and what that means. Um, you, you should just make a certificate program and charge people. Like for $25, I'll give you <laughs> and give you your public teaching. I mean, I think commissioning might be a good model. Like... And you can we make commission a commission people, on the commission. <laughs> we commission people to to ministries all the time. You know, we commission lay people to ministries all the time. And but then there's sort of a formal relationship with the church. And I think that could be cool. I don't know what this will look like. And it obviously is going to look really different in Anglicanism than it is in like the Baptist world. Because those are really different understandings of teaching and all of that. But I'm mainly just saying we need to ask these questions. And the last thing I want to say, this is the other thing, is that I brought this up in the context that I just have lots and lots of friends who are writers, who are teachers, who are doing incredible work that are women, and they're in denominations that don't recognize them as teachers, don't recognize them in any kind of formal way in ministry. And so... um because they don't ordain women or because they don't have women in ministry. And so, but even though they're drawing, I mean, they're speaking to like thousands of people every year and talking about Jesus, they're more or less preaching, but, um, but it's functioning entirely outside of their denomination. And so a lot of the whole call of my piece was saying, we need to put women in more places of institutional authority. When you think Ask your regular evangelical, like, I mean, this would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, but if you ask, like, like average evangelical, like, who are male leaders, like, who would they say? I mean, it, I think they would say, like, N.T. Wright, Tim Keller, um, I don't know, Tabidi Anabwile, like, um, Jeremy Tisby, like, <clears throat> I don't know, name some, like, past, like, people that are leaders, that are men, um, Russell Moore, maybe, but um, when you ask um, about female leaders. Like, so all of those men that I just named have theological education. They've been ordained. They've been credentialed in some way with female leaders. It's far, far fewer that have been credentialed, ordained, have any theological education. And it's because women have historically not been allowed into those positions. And I just think that that's created a vacuum where, um, women who are leading aren't getting the same kind of like oversight and training and authority, like, um, like recognition of power that men are getting. And so really I wrote this piece as a way of calling the church to like notice this and to put place it women in, um, to equip women strategically for leadership 
And um, so you weren't saying some people probably heard you as like squelching women or something. And what you're you're arguing is that you're actually trying to empower women, right, and give them an equal platform. That's right. To male teachers and bloggers. And That's right. I just figures. I don't want women to have the B team. You know, I don't want it to be like um, men have. You know, NT Wright and or uh, John Pike, like people that are like deeply studied have profound institutional embeddedness and women um, don't have access to that. And so that's why I was so shocked by the response is I actually wrote this and thought, I thought the pushback would come from com- from men, male pastors in complementarian settings, um, which there is a little bit of that, but that really isn't, all the pushback has come from mostly progressive bloggers um, and Ann Voskamp. But I was surprised because in my mind, this was asking for women to be institutionally empowered or for institutions to recognize how these women actually are teaching. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Thank you for being willing to talk about that because I think it's it was an interesting piece and yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry that if if you feel like you've been misinterpreted, uh, but thank you for pushing the conversation forward. Yeah. So, and God can use anyone, and God has used bloggers. And I am not saying like uh, this has taken like a turn where people are saying I don't like lay people. But my, I mean, I say this in the piece, but like you I, don't like some, you don't like some of them. I <laughs> you're a, you're a decent sized church. The, one, the ones that don't tithe, right? Going back to tithing, but um. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, I mean, I named my daughter after two lay women, um, Flannery O'Connor and Dorothy Day. So I love lay writers. Um, But I think we just need to think creatively about this notion of what it means to be a public teacher and what it means to have accountability in that. But also, um, you know, there's a power dynamic here that God can use anyone, but like N.T. Wright didn't say, hey, God can use anyone, so I won't get a PhD in New Testament. I mean, until women, until I see as many female leaders that are equipped and trained and sent by the church, then I'm going to keep calling for this, basically. You are equipped and trained and have been sent, and you've written a great book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And it's really interesting that one of the things I love about the book is you actually, well, first off, let me just say, I think we need more books like this because there's so many books about Christianity is radical, and the Christian, the, the mission-driven purpose, excelled, <laughs> rocket-fueled life. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm not living the Christian life. You're, you're going to say, no, no, no. The Christian life is lived, you know, dying and rising with Christ in your ordinary life. And so you sort of structure the book after a day, like waking up and, and then, you know, going to bed at the end. And, and in that, you also pair some of these moments with things in the liturgy. So you kind of have like how the liturgy how from Sunday to Sunday, the, lit- the liturgical practice of the church inform then the daily rhythms of your life, where you think that's really where the action in the Christian life is. It's not in these sort of romanticized Christian, heroic, testosterone, you know, rocket fuel Christianity. It's actually, it, it's actually in God's kind of showing up in the things like that you don't like to do, like making your bed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I lived my life for a long time winning to go from spiritual high to spiritual high. And I just think um, it's an unhealthy, unwise way of approaching the Christian life, that spiritual highs are certainly part of the Christian life. Um, but the a lot of the good stuff is in like um, 
kind of, I mean, sort of like in marriage, a, a lot of the good stuff is in like learning how to live an average Wednesday together. And I think it's the same, that a lot of the good stuff comes in um, this sort of slow, as Eugene Peterson would say, long obedience in the same direction and way less marketable. Um, it's harder to convince, you know, folks to like come to a conference about how to live a really boring, beautiful existence, <laughs> but versus like extreme, like you were saying, but, um, but I think that, um, I think that that is what spiritual maturity and Christian growth looks like. Yeah. It's, it seems like the kingdom, right. Can only be received. It can't be when Christianity sort of becomes a transformation project primarily, right. It, it, to get your life changed or something, it, it, it doesn't just get reduced to some kind of control and some, some person's institutional project or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think so many of the, I mean, speaking of the kingdom being received, so many of the metaphors in scripture are like that, right. Are things like really ordinary, like yeast and bread. And I mean, I bring this up in the book, but like the fact that Jesus had us remember him in a meal when he could have said like, do something super like climb this mountain or go to this very specific river that you have to travel the world to get to, or like do a trippy, like sweat lodge ceremony. And it's this meal, this like the most ordinary elements. And so when you look through scripture, there's so much that's ordinary. And the ultimate example is that Jesus spent 30 years of his life as basically a nobody, you know, that we know very, very little about what his life was growing up. And, um, and so not only did he, I mean, I think ultimately what I found as I was writing this book is that to live a life that is beautiful in the ordinary, we have to recover the doctrines of creation that we are creatures, that we have limits, that God made us with bodies, that God made us in a certain way to live in a certain um, place with the limitations, but also the incarnation that Jesus was a person that had, you know, bad breath and long days and that Jesus didn't have bad breath. <laughs> and so the incarnation is amazing. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because the incarnation is so incredible that it's either like completely true or it's worthless. Um, but it's such a beautiful idea to me and not just that Jesus would come, but that he would come as just a regular guy, just like super ordinary guy. And most of his life spent just going to work and living life. Yeah, you say something in the it's in, you begin the book waking and you talk about baptism and you have this wonderful passage. You say we are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that is given to us by grace, an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity will don that day. Is it is there something about the fact that how we get I was thinking too of baptism waking I was thinking of the matrix when Neo that baptism scene where he kind of is taken out of the matrix it's an awakening and you know I think it's interesting because the way you come into the body of Christ you can't do on your own you receive it and the way that is renewed in communion you don't do on your own so both are passive receptive acts that you can't do to yourself or by yourself yeah that's exactly right yeah, I like this idea that you brought up of receiving, that I think there is something um, really beautiful about that. And I, I say, this is the very end of the book, but I talk about worship at the end of the day is joining in with what God's already doing. Um, and 
And I mean that is that it's also joining in with what God has already been doing for 2000 years. I mean, throughout the church's history. Um, I mean, I, this is looping these things together, but I think some of the, some of what I'm bringing up in this controversial piece um, is that I just want to take the wisdom of 2000 years and figure out how it applies to today. So, I know that that's not easy, and I know that's not like straightforward, but I also think we can't just chunk it out the window. I think we have to live in that tension of like, what does it mean to take the wisdom that is we've received and apply it to our moment in history? And I think there's something there to learn about worship as well that, um, I mean, Stanley Harwes talks about like the problem with evangelicalism is, um, is that we resist repetition, that we have to build everything whole cloth. Like we have to like start, we have to, uh, we feel like we have to like make everything and invent the wheel over and over again. And, and he said, essentially you just get exhausted. You can't keep reinventing the wheel. The movement exhausts itself. And so there is some sense of needing to stop and go, what has God already been doing for thousands of years that we can join into and and renew for our own moment in history. You you talk about how in one of the chapters in the book about liturgy and ritual, and you talk about how your life was so technologized, and you say that without realizing it, that I had slowly built a habit, a steady resistance to to and dread of boredom, that your life sort of was shaped by avoiding boredom. Are you boring now? Have you like embraced boredom? I'm hoping to be more boring. Um, well, I'm hoping that I'm not more boring because I also talk about, <laughs> I talk about in the book about one of my very favorite stories in the book is this um, professor that we knew when my husband was getting a PhD who a kid comes to him and uh, this actually happened. This guy is so cool. He's like this much older, he was a Jesuit priest turned like he's married now and he's like this like salty kind of guy and super cool. And, um, he, this kid came to him and was uh, complaining about having to read Augustine. And like, he said, the guy, the little college student was like, it's boring. (laughs) This professor (laughs) who I will not name him. I don't want to get him in trouble, but he said, uh, he said, it's not boring. You're boring. (laughs) (laughs) And what he meant is, um, you know, when you're staring at the riches of the church and you're like, oh, this is boring. I want to be on my smartphone. Like it's, it's not like you're the problem in that scenario. And so I think one of the things I make, I I do think my life is very technologized still. That's not a word, but is that the word you use? I think it's, I think technologized is the word. Okay. Well, it is. It's technologized. And I think it makes me more boring. I think it empties me out. It makes me more impatient. It makes me less able to follow a long argument or a difficult argument. Um, it makes me less engaged with the people around me and with creation around me. Um, so it kind of hollows me out and leaves me where I'm just this kind of shallow, um, hot takey doing all the hot takes, um, uh, person that's sort of jumping from issue to issue, but doesn't have any real depth. So I still wrestle with that so much. Um, so I'm really having to figure out what it means to be in the 21st century and still, um, you know, embrace things like repetition, silence, um, stillness, boringness, like tasks that are boring, you know, I mean, no one a thousand years ago would have been like, hey, let's like have a deep 
conversation about how important it is to like, you know, do daily chores to be human. That was just a given. It was like, okay, we have to eat. And so like we have, and we have to go take our clothes to the river and clean them when when there wasn't this like, but I think now we're so disconnected from even just the very most basic like task of being human that we have to have conversations about what it means to be human because everything can be so technologized. We've lost our very bodies in the midst of that. Marva Dawn says right there, I think that we, we've tech, we've technologized our intimacy and intimized our technology. Oh, wow. So we stay in touch with each other on phone on texts and tweets and, and, and then our phone is into, Oh, hello. How are you doing? Like, hello, Scott, you know, welcome to, you know, I'm Siri. Like, so we have this kind of weird fusion of intimacy and technology. Yeah, that's right. And even the fact that like, I keep my cell phone in my pocket at all times. Like it's like literally touching my body and on me. Like I see my smartphone, I mean, probably 30 times more than I see my husband. So yeah, you lose your keys a lot more than you lose your phone these days. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and I mean, it's a struggle. It's a struggle as a mom. I mean, Tina, Tina Fey has this great, hilarious, um, quote about just like, you know, no one tells you when you have new kids, when you have young kids, like one of the struggles is it's just boring. Like they just, you love them, but they can't talk to you. It's like three in the morning and you're just bored. And so having this like little device that is full of entertainment and excitement at any moment, or at least drama, someone's fighting about something on the internet as we speak. Um, you can't, it, it can just, um, it's addictive. It really is honestly addictive. And it, and you can get where you um, are just resistant to boredom. But I, I want to contend that being bored is a hugely important part of being human. Um, and I mean, maybe, maybe I, I don't think God is bored. So, so maybe what I mean is embracing small, quiet things that seem to us in our weakness as boring is a huge part of being human. And maybe if we ascended to some great spiritual level, nothing would be boring because it would all be praise and it would all be wonder. Um, yeah, yeah, wonder's key, right? Because isn't Chesterton talk about like something like the difference between a four-year-old and like a 14-year-old at the zoo? A four-year-old they just don't know elephants should exist or something like that. I mean, everything is like a a, a mythical reality come to life. Whereas you're 14, you're just, eh, come on. Eh, you know, like this sort of loss of wonder and maybe something about modern life. You know, it's the demystification of the world. Yeah. Disenchantment of it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. It's the disenchantment. One of the, People early on in talking to me about my book said, you know, um, what are the goals for the book? And I had several goals. This wasn't my only, but one of them, as I said, I just want to re-enchant people's notion of the most ordinary things. Like I want to re-enchant sitting in traffic. I want to re-enchant like, you know, being in your house and doing laundry. Like it, just the notion that that could, that there could, that could be, um, that our cosmos could be like really populated with like spiritual realities. Um, And again, I want to be clear because a friend also asked me like, Hey, this isn't going to be one of those books where you like tell us we have to constantly be like staring at our child's hair, like in wonder of beauty. Right. Because I, I just think there's this reality that we live life. We're not going to be constantly in wonder. I mean, until we're like, fully, fully sanctified and free of all sin and cynicism. 
Um, I, I think there's this reality that we are going to get bored. Um, but, but maybe that, maybe that's part of growing as a human being and part of growing in wonder is embracing those experiences, um, and leaning into them. So, yeah, I think I went, I think there is something about re-enchantment in here that's important. I love laundry and you know, it gives me wonder. I discovered these shout color guard catchers. And so like, you cannot believe when you put like two of these things in the washing machine, they come out like so colored because all that dye is running out of the, your clothes. It's amazing. It (laughs) it makes me awestruck. Uh, In the, uh, in the chapter about sitting in traffic, you say that human made time might remind us of something real, but mostly it was a product, an invention made to sell something, maybe to sell snowmen to Southerners. Yes. <laughs> Can you say more about that, about the sense of like how time, like it, it often is a, is a construct and you're saying that it's sort of liturgical time, living with the church here helps you see the kind of consumer constructed and sometimes mm. arbitrary framing of time in secular space. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I bring up the um, snowman thing because I grew up in Texas. I grew up in Austin and it doesn't snow but we still have these like life-size wooden snowmen staked in the ground, which is kind of pathetic because those are the only snowmen we get. It's like 60 degrees outside, but there's the life-size wooden snowmen. So that's why I brought up that. But yeah, I just talk about, I struggle with living in time. Um, uh, um, just, and uh, so it's weird to me that God loves me and God loves time and God loves me in time. Like there's been, there's never a moment in our life where we're not um, completely submissive, whether we want it want to be or not, to this thing called time that we live in. Time is a creation, like that. That is something God made, but it's something. It's just this governing. We time calls the shots in so many ways, and um, and I think consumerism is this thing that as Americans, I mean, it's just really, really hard for us to get out of the bed in the morning without it somehow being shaped by consumerism. It's the water we swim in. I would say, I would say consumerism is our chief religious devotion as Westerners. Um, and, and that goes for whether you're on the left or the right or progressive or conservative, whatever you fall into, I think we've just been shaped by as consumers. Um, and so the church calendar, um, even that I know can, can be like gobbled up by consumerism and be like another thing that we're like, you know, marketing. Um, but that's because consumerism can literally gobble everything up. But, um, I mean, not literally, that's not the right word. Can, essentially go and gobble everything up. But, um, but I think, um, but I do think there's something about dwelling in this really historic practice. I mean, the notion of the church calendar is really, really old. Um, and I mean, thousands of years old where we're, where we're looking at time in a different way. And so it doesn't revolve around our work schedule or our sports schedule or, summer sales or, um, tax season, but it revolves around the story of Jesus. And, um, time is something that we're in every second. Um, so if we can name that and connect that to our worship and to the story of Christ, then I think it can tutor us. I mean, I think time can teach us how to worship. 
You uh, you say that you know it's really interesting because you hear so much people in the name of sort of pr- being prophetic. You know, we got to smash the idols, and you know, we got to kind of you know transform the world. And people have sometimes high minded, idealistic, and maybe no, but high minded conceptions of of what that looks like. You say uh, in the and towards the end of the book that. In the nitty-gritty of my daily life, repentance for idolatry may look as pedestrian as shutting off my email an hour earlier or resisting the alluring, that alluring clickbait to go to bed. What clickbait allures you? <laughs> Me specifically? Yeah. Well, I'll say that probably out of all the chapters in my book, the one I struggle with most is sleep, um, the final chapter. And um, the one I struggle with kind of being healthy around and worshiping around and accepting as as my own limitations. And so the closer, the later I get in the night, the less, like the, I mean, if the more tired I get, the more easily, like anything is alluring, the more easy it's like, Oh my gosh, NPR posted the timeline of jazz. Like I've obviously got to see that at 1130 at night. That's how could you go to sleep without looking at that? But, um, that's such a high minded answer. I like, uh, uh, I, I was, I was, jazz. <laughs> it's like not, it's not Kardashians, everybody. No, it's. A, let me think. Let me think. I'm gonna give some uh, actual uh, examples least, least of my, things. At least I my mean, clickbait is intellectual. Twitter, <laughs> it's Twitter, it's Facebook. It's not all intellectual. I mean, <laughs> and I told someone, I told someone the other day who I was talking about this. Like at 11:30 at night, I'm not gonna be like, who I want to read about, you know. <laughs> I don't know how to prevent violence in Darfur. Like, that's not what I'm reading. It's like, it is stuff like timeline of jet. I mean, it's just stuff that has like no real value in my life. It's just kind of keeping me up. But Twitter, Facebook, I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't read a a ton of blogs, but I, I read some. Um, I have a couple friends, um, like Kate Shelnut, who works for Christianity Today, my friend Philip Lorish, who works for New City Commons, they do blog curation. So they'll email you like the their favorite stuff of the week. So I mm-hmm. look at that a, a lot, but I don't know. Yeah. It's more surfing, right? I mean, maybe this is just me, but when you, when I get off, when it's like late at night and I'm like looking at stupid stuff on the internet, I usually close it and I'm like, what did I just look at for the last hour? Like, I don't even really even know what it is. It's just consuming. It's, it's consuming. Like you consume a drug, like you're not really engaged. You're like half engaged. You know, I had a friend who told me years ago that, that part of like spirituality is learning where you end and the world begins or, or, you know, learning to love your limits. And you say something similar towards the end of the book. You said, what if Christians were known as a countercultural community of the well-rested people who embrace our limits with zest and even joy? Yeah. I think a huge um, idol of our culture is the idea that we should have no limits, none at all, none from our body, none from other people that we should be completely um, autonomous, completely enabled people. And again, I think that this is an idol that runs across political divides. I don't, I'm not picking on one group of people here. I think um, that we think we should be able to completely construct ourselves and construct our world according to our own desires. And um, it's just not reality. I mean, none of us live in that world. We're all deeply, deeply limited by our, uh, you know, our bodies, but also, you know, like our, I can't know everything about everything. I mean, there's some epistemic humility that comes from this, um, as well that we can only know so much and we don't even know what we don't know. 
And, um, and so I think embracing humility, embracing our limit, limitedness is just such an enormous part of learning to worship. And that's going to come through like really concrete ways in our culture, including things like going to sleep. Do you, do you, we've talked a lot about the Christian tradition and we, you talked about it earlier in the piece you wrote about authority and you, and you talk about it a lot in the book and its significance for informing the rhythm of our ordinary lives. What, what are there part, what part of the tradition do you find problematic? I mean, what, what are things that you're like, gosh, we got to get over this or, the, or this needs to be reformed, renewed, or these ideas that have maybe been filtered out need to be filtered in. Are there things like that for you? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is a little cliche to say, but it still obviously needs to be said that like, um, women and people of color have been marginalized in parts of the West, at least in women in most all of it, but people of color in the Western world. Um, so the, the church has, I don't think that that's come from the tradition. In other words, um, somewhat the woman stuff has actually, but, um, I just did a podcast on this with um, Shane Blackshear, and I talk about when you look at the church, it's actually the church has consistently treated women better than the culture around it. But sexism is alive in the world, and and um, it's a power and principality, and it's a power and principality that the church has embraced in parts of its history, just as racism is a power and principality in the world, and it is a power and principality that the church has and is embracing in many ways. So um, the ways that the tradition has embraced the idols and the, and the principalities of the culture around it and been co-opted by culture, I think we constantly have to repent for and address. Um, so I think, um, and, and then I think there's also this tension that you brought up of this constant, it doesn't help to be like we're preserving tradition for tradition's sake. So there has to be this constant tension between being missional, going out, taking risk, getting in the culture, and preserving um, the gospel that's been handed to us by the church. I mean, the fact is we would not know Jesus except for the tradition of the church. The only way that we know anything about Jesus is because Christians wrote it down and passed it down and literally died, literally gave their life to preserve these writings to be passed down to the next generation. And so um, I think one of the things I struggle with now, and I'd love other people's thoughts on this, is that I think um, it's really trendy now to... um, I mean, people make careers off of just naming everything wrong with the church. And I think it's particularly easy if if your primary job is like being a blogger or cultural critic where you're not having to be in the church having to figure out how to fix these problems, which actually is much more complicated when you do it than to just, it's easy to diagnose. It's hard to fix. It's hard to cure. And um, so... Um, I think we have to live in this tension of being really, really, really honest about what is wrong with the church and also believing that the church is um, created by Jesus and is part of the gospel of God's redemption on earth. And I talk about this, I think, in chapter 9 of my book. I bring up Mike Ramsey and how he talks about how it's not enough to just like imagine what the church should be in her ideal glorified state. We have to look honestly and squarely at who she is right now and be honest about all of the failings in that. If we are going 
to serve her in any way. But in those failings, we see that for which Jesus died. Like in the failings of the body, we see why Jesus died. And we see that um, with weak eyes, I think is the phrase that he uses, the glory of God. We see that Mm -hmm. God can take this like really screwed up group of people and and transform the world in a really beautiful way. So, um, you know, it's very, the prophetic, like you said earlier, like being prophetic, um, has become uh, marketable. Now it's become the thing that, you know, we really like prophets. Like no one wants like the, the old, you know, Baptist deacon talking about what it was like in his day. But we have to understand that biblically like prophets, um, first of all, loved the people of God enough that they suffered for her. Um, but also they hated being pro like nobody signed up. Like it was like the worst to have to be a prophet because you were going to suffer and God was going to get you to do all of these things that are completely uncool <laughs> and humiliating over and over again. So I think we have to embrace the prophetic, um, but we also have to understand that comes with a ton of suffering and that's not just sort of complaining about the church online. That's not what it means to be prophetic. You know, one of the most prophetic figures I think in, in contemporary Christianity is Pope Francis. And it's interesting mm, part of maybe part of the credibility he has is he's also the priest. Like he's a lover of the institution and the organism as well as somebody that's an internal critic and I think maybe there's a credibility. Totally. As, as, you were ta- as you were talking I was thinking of that phrase from Augustine, right? The church is a whore, but she's still my mother. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Marry the whore. Exactly. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And, um, and the, I just, there's a tension there, right? Like, I don't want to make light of that. It's like really, really hard to have your mother be this like broken, 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 um, organization. But I think that we live in that tension and we experience life there. And, and I just think, yeah, I mean, my husband and I have made a joke about, and it's not really a joke, but it's something we constantly say of like the spiritual discipline of getting skin in the game. Um, cause that's not normally talked about as a spiritual discipline, but for me, that's just constantly where I have to go. Cause it's very, very easy for me to withdraw and to just sort of stay in a safe place where I can criticize other things as like a voyeur versus having to like get skin in the game put commitment in there, throw my lot in with broken people and figure out how to like, um, how to, how to, like you were saying, like with Pope Francis, figure out how to like offer critique as a lover and not just as a critic. Um, and, but, but you can't do that without like throwing your lot way in with people that you'd often not want to throw your lot in with. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Maybe in like in pre-modern times, you know, maybe the 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 call of God comes in a way that like Abram and Sarah, you got to leave your clan and land. But in modern times, maybe the call is to stay <laughs> because we're so mobile and so transplantable, and stay and embrace particularity and ordinariness, like you advocate yeah. in your book. Yeah, yeah. And I just think it's inescapable. I mean, ordinary. We're just going to not be able to escape ordinary life. Even if you move to some awesome place, like my friend, I talk about my friend who moved to Calcutta and it was like super exciting. And then he got there and he was like, oh, people live here like kind of the way we live in America. I mean, their lives look really different, but they love people. 
They sin against people. They get sick. They have to take care of their bodies. They have to go to work. Like wherever you go, there you are. And you have to deal with yourself and you have to deal with the people around you. And so I think um, the whole idea that we could somehow escape the ordinary is, um, it's false. It's a, it's a, it's a lie. And so whatever you, I mean, if you're like Barack Obama, you still like have to get up and brush your teeth and like live your day. And you still have to deal with the people that are closest to you in your life. And you still have to know what it means to love God, not abstractly, but to like to love God on a Tuesday, um, in May, you know, and like, what does it mean to love God in this moment? And so, um, I think that the daily living in everydayness is just so inescapable that if we don't figure out what it means to follow God in that, we're always going to be jumping from thing to thing, trying to figure out, um, you know, the right moment to love God. And we're going to always miss the moment that's right in front of us. Yeah. Mother Teresa famously would tell people, right. That would come to her, like, go find your own Calcutta. Mm-hmm. There's something to that. Tish, thanks for talking with me and thank you for this great book. And I hope everybody that's listening will pick up a copy of Liturgy of the Ordinary. Psych sacred practices in everyday life. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do please check out Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's a great book. And until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>